This is the Open to Explore FBC podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. In May of 1920, members of the Athens Baptist Church left the church building located on the corner of Washington Street and College Avenue. A new structure was planned for a new location, the corner of Pulaski Street and Hancock Avenue. In September of 1921, the first services were held in the new sanctuary. One hundred years later, in 2021, members, friends, and guests continue to gather for worship, education, ministry, and mission. This podcast series celebrates our 100-year anniversary of being in this location by featuring stories and memories from a variety of our members. Some will stir your laughter. Others may bring a tear or two to your face. Our second episode features Jill Dawson and John Barrow. Jill and John are native Athenians. They have experienced this church through all phases of their lives. Here is my conversation with them. Am I right that you two are cradle roll members of this congregation? So you literally grew up in the church. Much as we grew up, <laughs> <laughs> much as we did or didn't. <laughs> so you're both native Athenians. Yes. Mm-hmm. I imagine that you have heard a lot of pastors in the church, but one of the things that I think about when I remember my experience growing up in church, I was a cradle roll member at my church as well, is that those ministers from our childhood and teen years are really formative. I wonder if you can share a little bit about your experience in the ways the ministers of your childhood and your teen years really made an impression on you. Most of my growing up years, uh, Howard Giddings, our senior pastor, and I just thought he was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Before I was baptized, and I was baptized by him, we had, and John may have gone to this too, there was a class we took with Dr. Giddings to learn all about the church and what baptism meant. And I believe we took that when we were 10 years old, when we were in the junior department, and I was baptized after that. It's funny, he came back and spoke several times after he left. He went to Mercer and taught after he left here. And every time I heard his voice it was like I was in church. Brought back all special kinds of memories. He was a wonderful, wonderful pastor. Made you think. All of our pastors have. (laughs) That's good. Dr. Giddens is the first pastor that I can remember, Mm -hmm. and he was a remarkable uh, person, especially with us kids. Now, maybe not with all the kids, but he certainly (laughs) sure was with us, and it was a a real test case in in our families, in my family situation, because there were there were five of us who grew up in this church, and Dr. Giddens, I can still see him in the in in the in the pulpit and hear his his voice. He had a voice like a violin. It had a lot of glissando glissando mm. in it. It glide up and glide down, and, <laughs> and it wasn't. He didn't have a lot of volume, but he had good. He had some dynamics. He could get loud and soft, and but he had a wonderful way of of tapering off and saying something that would really kind of call attention to the to to, to what he was saying. He had a, had a wonderful style, very old school in that regard. What I remember about Dr. Giddens, I remember lots of things about him. I thought that he was fairly progressive 
for mainstream pastors of that day. You got to remember this is my first memories of him go back to kindergarten and first grade when we'd walk home from school at St. Joseph's and go through the church and go look him up. I came into this world with a twin sister, so there were two of us always into all kinds of things at the time. And one of them was our relationship with Dr. Giddens because we went to school at St. Joseph's for a number of unrelated reasons, but the path home from St. Joseph's took us right through the church campus. It was a very small campus in those days. And we always make a point of going through the church and trying to find Dr. Giddens and his uh, parsonage so we could talk to him about what we heard in catechism class that day and kind of quiz him on, on such things. <laughs> he was patient with us and, and indulged us a lot in that. What I knew about him at the time was that uh, we were a little bit different than a lot of Baptist churches in the South because this was the era of desegregation and integration. And it was the, the time when civil rights was really at the forefront of most social issues in the South at the time. And you couldn't be unaware of it, no matter what your views on it were. I came from a family that was in the forefront of trying to bring about a peaceful change and an end to segregation and to bring about integration of public facilities and schools and whatnot. So we felt very much at home in this church where Dr. Giddens was considered uh, very uh, very reasonable, very liberal on that issue. And I can still remember people coming to our church and, and calling us out and saying that we had a leadership role in our denomination to play because of the leadership we had in the church and the way that other churches in smaller communities or or lesser communities kind of looked up to us as one of the bellwethers in those turbulent times. So Dr. Giddens was, uh, I think, stood out in that regard. You echo something that I've picked up on through the years, that I've always felt like this church was, if not one of the ones in the very front, always in, in that lead pack in some form in Baptist life taking some first steps. I wouldn't say we were flamethrowers or Unitarians or anything like that, but I do think that there was more tolerance and more of an understanding of the need for change and the need to make that happen in a positive way uh, in our church than there was in most Baptist churches. And I would even say, you know, uh, among the churches in Athens, you know, it's a college town, so you got more than our fair share of eggheads and pointy-headed uh, intellectuals and whatnot <laughs> who sprinkle themselves in the, in the denominations of all the mainstream churches in yeah. town. But we certainly benefited from that, and I think, we, and I think it showed. Mm, very good. I imagine you've heard an array of people in the pulpit for various occasions, maybe Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night. I'm sure Sunday night services were popular then, maybe even other times in the life of the church when people would speak. Who were some of the people you remember hearing I am very bad with the names, but in my growing up years, every year there was a church revival, a week-long church revival, and a guest pastor was invited for that. Then later on, where we had guest pastors, and they came and did a series of days with us. Names, I cannot tell you, (laughs) but we've always had wonderful guest speakers. When we have been in between pastors, we have had wonderful interims that have have come. One thing that John was talking about, our church, I think our church has always been progressive, and we've always had pastors and special guests that made us think. I think we've been progressive in that we always talked about what was real and what was happening now. And I think a lot of our guest speakers helped us with that. John, what, I th- I who think, do you remember? I, I think our church leadership has always 
taken a lead and tried to make sure that we made our discussions and our sermons and our message and our mission relevant to what was going on in our society. We weren't uh, bringing up the rear. We were, I think, sort of on the forefront. We weren't out, you know, marching or anything like that. But I think we were deeply engaged in what was going on and aware of the felt necessities of the time. And I think we showed that. I can remember, as you know, one person really stands out in my memory. I was about 11 years old at the time when he came to speak to our church was Dr. Benjamin Mays, the 30-year president of Morehouse College, who at the time he came to visit us in 1972, I think it was, uh, was playing a leadership role in sort of a second career, sort of the capstone of his career, when he accepted a very challenging assignment to become the appointed head of the Atlanta School Board. Now, this oh. was at the time that integration was hitting Atlanta, just as it had hit our community just a couple of years before. We had a progressive board of education in our community, and we integrated in uh, Athens voluntarily without the aid of federal court intervention. Interestingly enough, it still had to go through court. My daddy was the judge who presided over the case that desegregated our public schools because the opponents of desegregation, the pro-segregation crowd, brought litigation in the state courts to stop what the local Board of Education was doing on its own. Oh, wow. So we had a Board of Education that was taking the lead and was taking the initiative to implement the mandates of Brown versus Board of Education, but we had some we had local families who fought that in court and brought in high-powered lawyers from out of town. It all began in my daddy's court because they brought it in state court because they didn't expect the trial court judge to agree with them, but they did expect what they thought would be the court of last resort, the Georgia Supreme Court, to agree with them. Daddy, of course, agreed with the board and upheld their position. He was promptly appealed, and the Georgia Supreme Court immediately reversed him. He said, I'm shocked, shocked to find that you're, you're, you're desegregating your schools out here using a race-conscious remedy. Can't do that. And they were ultimately reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court in a oh, very wow. unusual instance of the U.S. Supreme Court taking a case from the state Supreme Court that decided a federal constitutional issue, bringing it up and consolidating with a couple other cases. And they were the cases that Dr. Mays had to rely on when he was superintendent to bring about a, an effective desegregation of the Atlanta public schools. So he was fighting this stuff when he was in his 70s mm-hmm. as the leader of the largest school system in the state. And I remember him vividly coming over to preaching a sermon at our church and calling us out and lifting us up and, and saying, you have a leadership role to play First Baptist of Athens because people are looking up to you. You have more influence than you realize. And he was challenging us to continue to do what we were doing. And his mere presence was, was some evidence of that. I don't remember much of what he said, <laughs> but I do remember the way he made you feel and the way he looked and carried himself. He was six foot tall, but almost everybody encountered him said he made you think he was taller because he was so erect and so old school in his in his manner of speaking and his diction he was so eloquent he really commanded more attention just by his physical presence than you realize that's what i that's what i remember as an 11 year old when we were going through much the same stuff in athens that he was leading atlanta through at the same time that's remarkable that certainly made a really deep impression i'm sure any other voices or people that stand out I know that Dean Russ spoke to us. He came to Athens right after the uh, end of the Johnson administration, and in a bold move, he was uh, appointed to the faculty by uh, Dean Lindsey Cowan, who was a progressive all school education. Caused a lot of controversy, but he was welcome in our pool, but I know he spoke to us at least once. Very good. Occasionally, there are some unexpected things that happen 
when we're in the midst of worship. Oh, boy. I wonder if you recall one of those unexpected moments. I was thinking about that. One of the unexpected moments when I was a little girl that I remember was I apparently was not behaving in church, and my mother kept telling me that I needed to sit down and be quiet. And she said if I did one more thing, we were going home. And, of course, we'd all come in the same car. And I must have done one more thing because she marched me down that middle aisle to downtown to, at the time, there was a veteran's cab stand, and we went home. So (laughs) that was a little unexpected. But I've had some times that I have been just overwhelmed. I think the first ecumenical Thanksgiving service we had in our Mm -hmm. sanctuary with Christians and Jews and Muslims Mm -hmm. worshiping together was one of those moments where I was just completely overwhelmed with the love of God. The worship service after Mm. 9-11. Rick was actually in New York when that happened, and he did not get home until the Thursday before Sunday. And it was, I don't know, I had such a safe feeling of being in the church in the middle of not knowing what in the world was happening and I I felt like that was the place I needed to be and I will never forget that. The first time I walked into our newly renovated sanctuary I was struck by the theology of the room that you walked in the front door and you looked down the communion table and then you looked up to the baptistry and there was just kind of a straight line to where you needed to be so those are times that I've just been sort of overwhelmed when I've come into the sanctuary my youngest memory of being unexpectedly loved was when my grandfather died and in the funeral that he died when I was in kindergarten And I think that was the first time I realized what it was like to be in a church family. Mm. We were just totally covered up with love. Yeah. I remember that, and that was very unexpected to me because it's the first experience I had really had. But I still remember that feeling of everybody was taking care of me and everybody was loving me. You ask about unexpected stuff, and Jill's have all been unexpectedly good and pleasant. (laughs) Uh, The one unexpected thing that kind of sticks out in my mind was less so, and is an object lesson to worship committees everywhere. I remember uh, a Sunday when we were observing communion, and all seemed as it ordinarily was. I think I was in the choir at the time, so it would have been my high school years. I think I was in the adult choir earlier than, than, than most, earliest uh-huh. I could, so I'd get out of Sunday school. <laughs> so I, I, I did that early on, and old Dr. Fred Bennett <laughs> was the anchor of yeah. the bass section. And you have to picture this gentleman. He was quiet and, and had dignity all over him, bald as an eagle, but he had a big square head and very soft-spoken. He spoke in a low voice like this all the time, and you can see why he'd be anchor of the base section, your real low voice and everything. But Dr. Bennett was very conservative theologically. And there, this, there came this Sunday when we were observing uh, communion. And I, I think it had to be in the days of Julian Cave. I could be mistaken, but I think it had to be in that time. And what happened was as uh, the elements were distributed in the usual manner in our church, 
And it came to pass that when we were all asked to uh, drink from the cup in unison with all of our little respected cups, I had taken mine and then I realized instantly what no one had told me before, what no one had told anybody before. <laughs> uh, the worship committee, in a fit of originalism and uh, novelty, decided to substitute wine for grape juice. I do remember that. And there was actual <laughs> wine in these little cups. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a real pop. It wasn't <laughs> going to do anything for you or anything like that. But it really was wine. I mean, even though I was in high school, I could tell it was wine. It didn't hurt me any. I thought it was rather nice. It's certainly what I experienced when, on those rare occasions when I went with my father to the Episcopal Church. Okay. And I'd take communion him cause, with him because they'd allow you to do it there. But we'd only go to the midnight services with my dad mm. at the Episcopal Church as a nod to his faith and tradition of his upbringing. But I recognized it when I when I tasted it, and I looked around, and uh, everybody was a little bit surprised. I think some eyes went, some eyebrows <laughs> went up. But I I soon discovered after that that poor Dr. Bennett was broken hearted over this because he was very proud of the fact, or so it was reported to me. So I came to understand. He was very proud of the fact that he was an observant uh, teetotaler. And alcohol had never crossed his lips oh my. in his entire life. And he was proud of that fact. And I think there was a, there was a certain sense of betrayal that while it certainly wasn't going to affect his conduct or his standing with the Lord or anything like that, <laughs> nonetheless, the, the, the perfect voting record, he's like one of the members of Congress, goes up there and has 6,000 votes and never misses one. You know, he yeah. just, it, was, it was something he was proud of, yeah. that he had managed to go through his entire life with totally abstaining from any ingestion of alcohol whatsoever. And his own church did it to him. <laughs> and I think it I think it it kind of blew a record that he was kind of proud of. And I think it saddened him a little bit. I don't think it killed him or anything, but I think it really did break his heart that he was surprised like this. So I guess my the moral of this story is to worship committees, no sudden moves. <laughs> kind of, if you're gonna do something different, especially something so different from the Baptist tradition, give people a little heads up about it. Because you, you, you might be Stepping on someone's sensibilities there. As Baptists, we're, we're proud of the fact that we're not literalists and we recognize the symbolism of things and we don't have to have the communion every every week like some traditions do because that yeah. kind of cheapens it, makes it kind of routine, you know, kind of kind of ordinary. We, we set it apart, make it a little different. So we recognize that it's symbolic. And I guess we recognize that doubly when we put grape juice in there instead of wine. Uh, that kind of kind of accentuates the fact that we know we're being very symbolic here. We're not being very literal about it, about, about any of this. But uh, nonetheless, I think it really did. It's moral for the rest of us to be aware of the fact that uh, some folks kind of rely on a little tradition yeah. and a little settled expectations. <laughs> I'm sure some people really woke up that morning, caught their attention. <laughs> it did. Let's just say it didn't happen again. No, it did not. Yeah, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the first time having communion where I had an experience with wine. I was at a conference, you know, multi-denominational conference, but we were at, it was either an Episcopalian or a Lutheran retreat center, and it was a small group, and I took a taste from the common cup at 9.30 in the morning and <laughs> really caught my attention. Sometimes we'll refer to sanctuary as a sacred space. What makes the space sacred to you? What what makes it have a sense of where you feel something that is the presence of God in that space? Well, because I've been in this church my whole life, a lot of this has to do with my family. I don't remember it, but I was dedicated in the church, and my parents brought me up before the church 
and made a covenant with God that they would raise me in a Christian family. And the church, in return, made a covenant that they would support my parents and help raise me in the church. I was baptized here. I was baptized when the baptistry was in the floor. It's no longer in the same place, but I was baptized here. And, of course, that that makes it sacred for me. Uh, Rick and I were married in the sanctuary, and we covenanted with God that we would love each other and care for each other for the rest of our lives and that we would, would form a Christian home. That certainly makes it sacred for me. Both of our children were dedicated here. Rick and I had them dedicated here. Both of my children were baptized here. Both of my parents' funerals were here, and I felt like that was when we gave them back to God. So a lot of what is sacred to me is things that have happened to me and with me with my family. The Christmas Eve service became very sacred to Mm. me. Both of my daughters were baptized on Christmas Eve. And that particular service in our sanctuary, I feel like, has added so much to my celebration of Christmas. In In my family, we always read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. But going to church and worshiping and having communion on Christmas Eve is very sacred to me. That has really added to my celebration of Christmas. My oldest daughter's grandchildren have been to every Christmas Eve service at our church, <laughs> except oh, wow. for last one because, yeah. because of COVID. So that became a part of their celebrating Christmas too. Mm. I'm reminded of the story of the, of the two guys, the old friends who went to the same synagogue year after year. And Daniel says, hey, David... Why do you go to synagogue? You don't believe in God. When you go there, you're not going to be with God. He says, he said, David, I don't go to synagogue to be with God. I go to synagogue to be with you. And if the place has a sacred feeling for me, and I think it's a heavy word because we tend to apply that to things and objects and whatnot, what I find special about the place is where I find the people who are there who mm-hmm. make it special. I mean, the place really isn't very special if it's only being used, you know, an hour a week, and the people who make it so are not there. I mean, it's sort of a sort of a, a wasted space in lots of ways, lots of times. But the thing that makes the place special to me is the people who come there, and their different purposes, uh, but they're but the things they have in common, uh, especially the enjoyment of the fellowship of each other, and that's what I always associate uh, with the church. I've lived long enough to see the church in all three of its physical incarnations <laughs> the yeah. middle the middle in in my opinion was sort of like an incarnation it certainly <laughs> <Yeah>. was <laughs> in, never in, like an incarnation <laughs> is when you uh, is when you believe that when you die you come back to life as one of the beverly hillbillies it's <laughs> <laughs> sort of an incarnation in in my opinion and i know i'm stepping on some people's sensibilities but i've seen the church in all of its incarnations and none of them has held a special uh, grip on me the first and the last i think are more baptist uh-huh. in terms of their orientation and how they are physically set up to reflect what I think is distinctive about our tradition and our place in the in the history of, of Protestant Reformation generally. The centerpiece of our service is a long, detailed discussion about the Word, where someone's going to tell you something about the Word that you hadn't thought about or put it in a context you hadn't thought about. 
It's not going to be a short ritualistic unrolling and thinking about what someone was thinking about you know, a long time ago. It's going to be relating it to the events of the day, relating it to our lives. It's going to be a long. It's going to be at least twenty-five to thirty minutes long, and the stuff that we share with other traditions, repeating things, reading in unison, the up and down, that sort of thing, is really kept to a minimum in a typical Baptist church. But the focal point is the spoken word by the pastor or whoever is going to be doing the speaking. And so our, and our church, traditionally, the podium is in the middle, not because we're making a graven image out of the person who's there, but because the focus of what brings us together is to try and relate the word to our lives and to each other. And that's a spoken exercise, and we've got someone who's a leader who's called out to help speak to that issue, and you have an equal perspective any place in the church if the guy's right in the middle. You know, I think our ordinances of the Last Supper and baptism are, are fine, but I don't think they're the centerpiece of the weekly service. We know they're not because we don't use them every week. We actually de-emphasize those and emphasize the one thing that from our critical Reformation-based tradition is to question Rituals, symbols that have ceased to become symbols but have become graven images in, in other traditions, is to question all that. And I think that that's what, that's what we do in our church, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that uh, we have a sort of a restoration of the focus of that in our current sanctuary. But to return to the point I began with, the thing that makes the place special to me is the people who come there. A common place where shared experience occurs in doing that with others really is where, as you talked about when you were five at your grandfather's funeral, you felt a sense of this is what it means to be Christian family. And the space provided an opportunity for that to really gather. But it's, as you say, John, it's what's happening in that space is what really speaks to us. The beauty is, is that we can step into that space and know that through the decades, people before us and then people after us will have those similar kinds of experiences. I like to think sometimes that all that just sort of swirls around, like the Hebrews passage of the great cloud of witnesses always present with us. Both of you have talked about what you see when you're in the space now is the centrality of the Word of God. And it's not something that we feel content to just have repeated back to us so that we are transported right. in time to a certain story, a certain place, in a certain setting. It is the making relevant of mm-hmm. what was written then to our lives today, which involves uh, a lot more current events, more conversation, certainly something you don't get from traditions that place a higher premium on repeating the same words or much more, doing it in a dead language or finding communion with the Lord or with each other in the repetition of the same thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's, that's the background of meditation. It's the background of saying the rosary. I mean, there's lots of good things to be said for that. But what I like about our tradition, what I think is uppermost in our tradition, is the willingness to question those things and to try and make relevant to our times the, the lessons that you can learn from the past. So you have experienced a great deal of changes here in the space and the way it's looked, in addition to the different people who've led in it. What are the constants? Things change around us and people change, but are there some things that are really, one or two things that are really constant and consistent for you? Well, we've always had wonderful, very educated ministers to lead us. I think that's true since the church was built. This may sound silly, but To me, the windows, which are shaved marble and golden, there is just a light and a softness and 
a presence when you go in our sanctuary. And I don't know if John thinks so, but it seems to me it's always smell the same. When you go in, it just <laughs> you just know that you're at church. And that, for me, has never changed whatever the color of the paint was or where the aisles were or what the seat cushions looked like. The feeling of the church has always stayed the same for me. Well, one of the things that I think is a constant in our church, but it's hard to notice because it happens slowly, like a coral reef that is constantly changing shape and color and always growing, but you can't see it if you just look at it. You've got to observe it over a sufficiently long period of time. I guess the reason you're talking to me and Jill is at least one of us has looked at it a sufficiently long period of time. <laughs> That's right. But we what, have been. But what, what I've noticed, it's a constant that it took me a long time to realize, is that the church has always got leadership, lay leadership, but it's always changing. Hmm. I'm reaching a point now in my 60s when none of the people who were church leaders when I was a kid are alive, and most of them are not remembered. But for every, for all of us, Julia's and Aunt Lollipops and the people of that era, we have the Betty Jane Farrells of today. Uh, for all the uh, young, dynamic people we had who were in their middle years, the leaders in the 60s and 70s, we have the, the Rick and Jill Dawsons of today and the Daniel and Cindy Haygoods and the Chris and the Mary Connellys. I mean, moving into a leadership role so imperceptibly you don't realize that it's happened. But if you've been here long enough, you realize the church leaders aren't gone. They've just been replaced by people who have stepped into their into their shoes, carried us to the next level. But the fact that there's been strong later leadership here all the time, you know, I'm struck by the ghosts that I don't see sitting in the church. But then I see new people sitting in their regular seats Sunday in and Sunday out and realizing that this is what's this is what's going on in the life of a church, that it is continuous and that there's a great deal of stability in the midst of all that change. All those faces that are gone yeah. are being replaced by people who are standing up and taking the right position and leading us forward who are just the next generation of folks that you grew up with. And I think that's a constant that's always in motion. I've got a few more things to ask, but I wanted to know if there's something that you wanted to share that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet. (laughs) I should have said this earlier when you were asking the most memorable things. Probably the most, besides my wedding, the most memorable experience I had in our sanctuary was when I was ordained as a deacon. I was the only new one that year, so it was just me up there by myself, but I never realized the power of the laying on of hands. I can't really even describe what it felt like. It was probably one of the most beautiful things that has ever happened to me, and what made it even more beautiful was um, a gift from Hannah Coe. My oldest daughter and one of her sons came to my ordination, and Hannah brought the children from Children's Church. Mm. And the children laid their hands on me, including my grandson, Reed. Oh, that's nice. I just don't think it could have been any more powerful. The things we do in our church where we affirm each other can be a very, very powerful thing in somebody's life. And I appreciate our church that we do that. That picture you paint is such a beautiful explanation and representation of what priesthood of the believer means. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It transcends age, transcends gender, and it brings about an equality of extending blessing 
that is rich. Oh, yeah. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> well, we had some things that happened to us as a family that didn't happen to most. Jill was talking about how she went through a baptism class uh, along with her peers. <laughs> yes. We didn't do that in our family because there was an, there was an outside exigent circumstance that kind of interrupted the lethargy or the, or the inertia in our family. We're an ecumenical family. My father was a good Episcopalian. I mean, a good Episcopalian. Uh, he went to services regularly by himself at the early morning service at Emmanuel, like 8 o'clock in the morning, while we were still shaking ourselves out of bed. And, and then he would join us at the church of his wife's family because my mother was a good Baptist. And Daddy married into a, a Baptist family. His in-laws, Professor Jenkins and, and Ruth Jenkins, were mainstays of this church. He, he married one of their daughters. And so he faithfully attended services at First Baptist in fact, I don't think anything made, I, don't, I never saw him prouder than when we'd all be lined up on the front row <laughs> and Daddy would be on the aisle where the gentleman should sit and there'd be Mother and then there'd be the five <laughs> of us. He'd look down the aisle at us and just beam. He'd just smile, <laughs> send us all there. Well, that, that was, sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was a little odd. The good times when we all got baptized because my Granny Jenkins was going to Europe to visit her daughter, my Aunt Barbara, after the great flood in Pisa in 66, uh, 65, I think it was, when she was going over there. In our family, my oldest sister, who was in high school, and me, I was in like the third grade or something like that, we all decided we'd get baptized for her. It was going away present, so we all got baptized at once, so we didn't have the class thing, (laughs) and we had the unusual feature of middle-aged teenagers all the way down to uh, kids in there. I think we were nine years old, Church and I were, when we were baptized. So it was the full range. All five Baptist (laughs) kids walked down the aisle that Sunday morning, March 28, 1965. And that evening, at the evening service, we all got baptized by Dr. Giddens. (laughs) So that was a good thing. We could do do things with economy and efficiency all at once. (laughs) Maybe a little later for some of the older believers in the bunch and a little perhaps just on time for some of the younger believers in the bunch. But we all did it as a family. But something else we did as a family that was a little odd, because we all went to St. Joseph's School for a whole bunch of reasons, my parents were the first non-Catholics to be the president of the St. Joseph's PTA because they had all those kids there, and that was good. But we would attend catechism class because we didn't have any real reason not to. We weren't tested. We weren't have to because we were visitors in the, in the faith family at St. Joseph's. But we'd attend catechism class. And we were more interested in, I think, than the Catholics were because we didn't have to take tests on it. <laughs> Since we weren't tested on it, I think we found it more interesting because it was, it was just we were just kind of curious in watching them and listening to what they were saying. Well, there was this Sunday morning when church services are just underway, when an ambulance siren goes off in the distance somewhere, and all five Barra children on the front row in unison made the sign of the cross and started mumbling to themselves, <laughs> sub silencio, as we say, saying a Hail Mary under our breaths. And it called, caught the attention of everybody up front, everybody kind of looking at this, because you know, that's what we were taught by the nuns to do, because <laughs> one, one of the little moral lessons they teach the kids is whenever you hear an ambulance... Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what kind it is, someone's in trouble. Mm. You should say a prayer. Either someone's house is on fire, or someone's you know, broken the law, or someone's sick and going to the hospital. Say a prayer. Doesn't matter what it is, good or bad. You need you need to say a prayer. And so that's what we did. And it, it kind of showed us out as being sort of a little, little different <laughs> from most of the most of the kids in the church. <laughs> like I say, we were a very ecumenical bunch <laughs> in our family. It's time for us to do lightning round. Oh goodness. You ready? Wedding. Fine. In this church. <laughs> My sister Ruth's biggest wedding I ever saw when I was a little kid at the time. I was like uh, like a 13 or something, but I got to walk my grandmother down the aisle, so that was, that was a big deal at the time. Communion. Probably my first communion after I was baptized because when 
we were Southern Baptists still then, and you did not take communion until you had officially joined the church and been baptized. So that's probably the one I remember the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, just open as opposed to closed. We were at St. Joseph's, and while we certainly didn't feel offended by it, we were, we were excluded from that practice, and we learned early on that there are some traditions that are that are rather exclusive toward uh, toward the Lord's Supper, and I value that and understand the reason for that. It's designed to channel you and, and guide you in the, in the catechism right. and all the things you have to do in order to become eligible to do that, but it's the exact opposite in our tradition. Christmas. Handel's Messiah. Oh, yeah. The orchestra that we have, because I am not a trained singer, that's the only time I get to sing with an orchestra, but I, I love it when there's an orchestra there. Easter. Something recently. The labyrinth that you had in Fellowship Hall, I thought that was very meaningful. Well, I think more of Palm Sunday in our church because we make more of a spectacle of the kids bringing the palms down the aisle, and that still stands out in my mind. It's yeah. one of the pleasanter aspects of the Easter season, which is more than just one day. There was one Palm Sunday. My granddaughters were here. It was their spring break, and Lark had gone to choir. I think Jennifer was her teacher then. She, she was really little. She had gone to choir on Wednesday, and when they came to get the kids to get their choir robes on, Lark wanted to go too, and she told them she knew the songs, and so Rick and I are sitting there, and in walks Lark with her little <laughs> pond frond, and she she sang with Brownie Bear Choir. It, that was unexpected. I guess I should have put oh. that with the unexpected. That is really good. Baptism? My own. Five of us all at once, my older sisters and, and older sisters and my older brother and my twin sister and I going through all at the same time. I think I'd have to go back to Christmas Eve when both my daughters were baptized on Christmas mm. Eve. Funeral. Well, it's a toss up for me between my grandmother, who was not only important to me and, and my faith fellow, but I think she was important to lots of other people too. Uh, her funeral was was the one that I remember most vividly. Julian Cave delivered a f- fabulous eulogy for her. But then my mother's and father's funerals were both, all, both almost funerals of state. There were people from all around who came. They helped us an awful lot to get through the solemnity of the moment. I would probably say my parents' funerals, but most recently Zach Burgess' funeral oh. that was held in our church. He was such a huge part of our community, and it was so wonderful to see the cross-section of everybody from Athens there. <laughs> And that story is special in a number of ways. He leading our daily bread and us being a host of that for a number of years. It's where we opened our sanctuary to a church that needed more space. They were planning to have their service, but they needed a room that was larger. And we graciously opened our space for someone else to use. I thought there was another special aspect to that experience. It speaks to some of the nature of what this congregation values. Mm -hmm. Revival. (laughs) If you're talking about the literal of church revival seemed boring and long. Mm -hmm. When I think of our (laughs) when I think of our church in the bigger picture, I think we have revival all the time here. Hmm. I think it is more organic than episodic. 
I think the old-time Baptist tradition of trying to fire people up actually did work for folks in a certain uh, monotonous routine kind of lifestyle, but I don't think it fits ours, which is why it's kind of fallen away in, in our mm-hmm. own particular practice. But I do think you see sort of in what I was commenting on before, that there's an organic, constant evolution and a growing of people in their own faith journeys and therefore in the faith journey of the community of which they're a part. John and Jill, I really appreciate your time. Very much Mm -hmm. enjoyed hearing your experiences and stories you had to share. One thing I did say that, that was unexpected that I just remembered, the youth choir sang at Sunday night services and Dr. Giddings let church out early so that we could all go home and see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. He did do that. <laughs> like I said, it was broad-minded for, for a Baptist congregation. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our series recognizing the 100-year anniversary of being on the corner of Pulaski Street and Hancock Avenue. On Sunday, November 7, All Saints Sunday, we will make special recognition of this centennial mark. Listen next week to our third episode in the series, featuring Robin O'Rear and Cindy Haygood.